Well, I'm not sure if you noticed in the worship songs today, but we sang the word kingdom quite often. And because of the title of the message today, of course, I heard and registered every time kingdom was sung. And uh, our message today from John chapter 18 is going to be, as you see on the screen above, about the kingdom clash. Now, as we sang about King Jesus and the fact that he's the king of the world, the king of all the king of kings, the king we come to worship, the one who is worthy as we've just been singing, his version of kingdom is so radically different from any other version of kingdom that's ever existed or that exists today. And that's that's a big part of the clash. See, in our world today, we have all kinds of kingdom clashes going on. And I could spend the whole morning listing them. I won't. You You can guess what many of them are. And yet, I hope and pray today as followers of Jesus that rather than us getting distracted by all the kingdom clashes around us, that we examine again, what's the true kingdom? What did Jesus mean when he talked about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Now, we're in the book of John, and uniquely in the book of John, Jesus only uses the word kingdom once, and it's in the passage that we're going to look at today. If you go to the the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses kingdom of heaven dozens of times. You could call Matthew the kingdom gospel. It's a huge theme. And yet Jesus very strategically is going to talk about the kingdom today. And that verse um, is in verse 36 of John 18. And it just simply says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's the next slide. My kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. So, what is this kingdom? What is this mysterious kingdom that Jesus is talking about? I think we have a lot of sort of vague and sometimes strange or distorted ideas. But what is this kingdom? Well, let me start with this quote. Um, I, I love this quote, but I, also, I love the name of the, of the author. His name is Sky Jeff Thanny. I don't know why I think that's a great name. It's good. But he wrote a little book called What If Jesus Was Serious? Anyway, he says this. It's the next slide. The kingdom of heaven is not the church. It's not where God's people go after death. It is the realm where God rules and evil is powerless. Jesus announced that his kingdom was now at hand, meaning it is within our reach. The kingdom of the heavens has broken into our world, and a new way of life is now possible. Just let that sink in for a moment. Again, we're not the kingdom. Just in case you're wondering, we're not the kingdom. But the kingdom is when God really rules. What is this kingdom at hand? Now, as I already said, Jesus' view or teaching or demonstration of kingdom was so unique and so contrasted everything around him. And so the other question I'm going to hope to answer today is, why? Why is Jesus' kingdom so different from every other idea of kingdom? Now, a number of years ago, I already have to say this was an old book because it was written in the 90s. How horrible to say that, that a book is old if it was written in the 90s, but I guess it is. Anyway, the book is called The Upside Down Kingdom, and it's, it's a great little read, and uh, the author, Donald Craybill, says this. Next slide. He says, The kingdom is full of surprises. Things are reversed. Paradox, 
irony, and surprise permeate the teachings of Jesus. They flip our expectations upside down. The least are the greatest. The immoral receive forgiveness and blessing. Adults become like children. The religious miss the heavenly banquet. The pious receive curses, shattering our assumptions. The kingdom of Jesus, the upside-down kingdom. What's it all about? And why did Jesus' kingdom clash so much with the kingdoms of his day and I would suggest the kingdom of our day? Now, our main text is John chapter 18, and uh, Darren started us in the first half of the chapter last week, and I'm going to finish off chapter 18 this week. Now, just a little bit of background and context. At the beginning of John chapter 18, Jesus is arrested, and Jesus goes to trial. Now, the trial begins with Jesus being taken to the Jewish religious authorities, Now, at that time when Jesus lived, that area of Palestine was called Judea, and it was a Roman province. It was like an outlying, um, dangerous kind of Roman province, actually. And at that time, the Romans were the conquerors. They ruled. But in their rule, they still respected the locals and allowed them to keep their religion and to keep some of their practices, So the Jews still had the temple, they still had their religious practices, and they had a certain level of of, um, allowance to use their law and to have their own court system. So it's kind of like they had the lower courts. So last week, when Darren was in the first half of the chapter, he talked about how Jesus went to the courts of the high priest, Caiaphas, and in that sort of had a pre-trial. The problem, though, was that they had limited authority. So as much as they would have loved to have the authority and have the kingdom power in order to do whatever they wanted with Jesus, they had to go to the Roman officials. And that's the part of the story we get to today. So if you want to turn there, we're going to be in John chapter 18. And I'll read the first part of this starting at verse 28. So John chapter 18, verse 28. So then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas that's what I just said, he was the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Okay, we'll pick up, pick up the story a little later, but let's, let's kind of just try to, try to picture the setting that Jesus is in as he's at, at um, Pilate's palace, the Roman governor of the region, and the trial continues. Now, this Pilate character is a very, very inter- interesting character. To be honest with you, the Gospels are actually um, 
you know, somewhat okay with Pilate. They don't, they, don't, they don't portray him quite as evil as many other historians do. But what's interesting about Pilate is that there's many historians, both Jewish and Greek and Roman, that wrote about him. And there's a lot of information about a very, very interested and messed up dude. But it could all kind of come down to this one statement I found. This one, basically, Pilate was a brutal ruler whose atrocities were legendary. So there you go. That's who Jesus is dealing with here as he, as he meets this, this Roman governor. Now, you might have noticed that it's kind of a weird setting. Like, so the, so the Jews bring Jesus, and they have to bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor, but they won't go into the palace. They're going to stay outside because it's Passover season, and it would be against their law. They would become ceremonially unclean if they went into the, the home of a Gentile. So, isn't that interesting, right? So, so here's the Jews who absolutely despise the Romans, who are being permitted religious freedom in order, in order to practice, practice their law and customs, and they can't even go into the palace or into, into a place of, of Gentiles, of non-Jews, without being polluted. And yet, the irony and the paradox of all this was now that they needed them, it's like they're there at the door. So if you're wondering why, why Pilate's going back inside, talking to Jesus, coming back outside, talking to them, it's because they wouldn't go in. And every time I read a scene like this, it just always makes me think of what legalism does. And I think uh, Dave um, addressed some of that in a way this morning and what he had to share. Thank you for that, Dave. But you know, sometimes legalism gets us off track, and we start to focus on the wrong things. And you know, that so often happened for the Jews. They got so caught up in their laws that they completely missed who Jesus was. They were so caught up in trying to do all the right things and do all the religious do's and don'ts and practices to the letter of the law. They thought that's what would please God. And yet in doing that, they missed the ultimate message of Jesus. Jesus, the one who came and said, I've come to give life. Life to the full. And I think sometimes we have to ask ourselves, do we want the life of Jesus or do we want to get the rules right? Or do we hope that everyone else around us that are driving us crazy, why don't they get the rules right? Is our focus get off? Or is our focus on what Jesus came to do? And that's really what the core of his kingdom is all about. So we're beginning to see some of this legalistic clash going on with what's going on with the Jewish people. You see, in the setting here, you kind of have a Jewish problem and a Roman problem. So here's the Jewish problem. As these Jewish leaders observed Jesus, it was very clear to them, Jesus is not the Messiah we've been expecting. Okay, yeah, he pulled off some good miracles, did, some, did I suppose, some great things like that, deceived a lot of the people, but there's no way he's the Messiah. He is not a strong enough leader. He doesn't have a strong military component to back him up. There's no way that this Jesus guy can get his act together and can get enough military together to overthrow the Romans. We are not going to have our kingdom restored. There is no way that this is our Messiah. So they were very clear on that. However, what was really hard for them was this Jesus guy keeps having all of these followers. And these followers are quite devoted to him. And to make matters worse, um, this Jesus guy is really good at interpreting the law and the Torah, and he makes us look bad a lot. And the people think that he has more authority and is a better teacher, and so everything about Jesus they despised, they were intimidated by, they couldn't stand 
And of course, they were worried that if the wrong guy set himself up as Messiah and then spoiled it for the rest of them and they couldn't overthrow the Romans and their whole plans for freedom were once again dashed and set aside, they were ruined and they wanted to avoid that at all cost. And so that's why they thought, let's get rid of this guy before he causes more problems for us and for the Romans. That was their big dilemma. That's why they wanted to get rid of him so bad. The kingdom that they wanted was not embodied by Jesus in any way. And they could back that up with hundreds of scriptures and quotes from Torah because they, were, they would have been able to do that easily to prove this is not the Messiah, this is not the kind of kingdom that God wants for us. So that was a Jewish problem. The Roman problem was, again, I said Judea is a Roman province, and it's kind of on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, and it's kind of a little bit of a rogue area, like no governor wants to go there. It's kind of like if you're at the bottom of Caesar's list, you get sent to Judea or a, a place like that. You don't want to be there because the Jews were thought of trying to find my quote here, basically revolutionary troublemakers. And who wants to rule the host guys? But here's the problem. These Jews would often revolt and cause them all kinds of problems. So if there was even anything in the wind of somebody claiming to be king and a threat to Roman power, the Roman authorities had to take it seriously. So even though Pilate is looking at the evidence and hearing all the things he's hearing is going, this Jewish Jesus guy, he's just some religious freak. Like, why do I have to deal with this? But yet, oh man, but if, they, if he thinks he's a king and if there's enough people that think he's a king, then I've got political problems on my hand. We can't have that. What am I going to do with him? So that's the big dilemma of this trial and how all of these kingdoms are coming to, coming to a big clash. All right, so then we get to verse 36. I have it on the screen there for you. Where Jesus says to Pilate in response to his question, He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. So, it sounds like Jesus is is answering in quite a unique way to Pilate, not as directly as I'm sure Pilate would like. But Jesus is almost turning turning it around. You, You sometimes wonder in this scene, who's really on trial? And that, that'll come, come even become more evident later. But Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom in a different way. Now, if I had the time to take you all the way back through John, I could show you, and Darren would love it if I would do this, but he's not here to critique me today. But anyway, it would be great to be able to go all through John and show how Jesus was declaring and preparing the kingdom all along. And the disciples, like most of us, we, we never seem to get it, but he was teaching it and bringing it. And so I could certainly show you that through a long sweep of John. But to illustrate what Jesus' kingdom was like and why there was such a clash between Jesus' kingdoms and the kingdoms of the day, I can illustrate in two really quick and what I would call crazy extreme examples. So are you ready for them? They're actually not in John. They are in Matthew. So we're just going to take a little diversion over to Matthew. There's a famous passage in Matthew chapter 5 that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus' classic sermon on what the kingdom is. And he unpacks it and defines it in ways that was crazy to them and crazy ridiculous to us today too. But this is what the kingdom... Again, 
I'm just going to give you two really quick examples in Matthew chapter 5. So go down to verse 38. Jesus speaking, he says, You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he goes on and even gets more ridiculous. Now, the first thing you got to notice here is the theological danger zone that Jesus is walking on. Do you get what he's trying to say here? He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say. Now, he's not just talking about tradition says, but I say. He's actually saying scripture says, Torah says, but I say. Can you imagine? If I got up here as your preacher and said, the Bible says, no, but I say, I I would hope that you would throw me off the stage and call me a heretic, right? But what is Jesus doing? I think what we miss and what we have to be really careful in understanding about the kingdom and even what true Christianity is, is that we always see all of Scripture as incredible as all of Scripture is, we always need to remember that we see it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. God in the flesh before us. Number one revelation of God. What did Jesus say? If you want to know who the Father is, you look at me. The Scriptures are our wonderful testimony of God, but the Scriptures are not God. Jesus is God. He is the living Word. And so Jesus, yes, as much as that may offend us, he has the authority to say, Scripture says, but I say. So if you want to know why they were so messed up and why I said earlier that they could Scripture and verse like crazy as the greatest theologians and prove that he's not the Messiah because that's not the kind of kingdom we want. We want the kingdom that bashes, wins, rules, and has power. We don't want any of this... Sissy love and grace stuff. That's about as boldly as I can say it why there was such a clash as to the kind of kingdom they wanted and the kind of kingdom that Jesus was portraying and fulfilling in front of them. So anyway, just where Jesus was coming from in terms of authority. So this first one, right? He says, eye for eye, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, no. Now, this is why this is so ridiculous. Jesus is talking about what we would call the law of retribution. The law of retribution makes absolute sense. It's what our whole law system is basically controlled by or defined by. You know, it basically means that the punishment equals the crime, which is wonderful logic and makes sense, and the law of retribution is what makes sense to any normal person. So for them to be offended, and even for us to be offended by what? What What are you saying here, Jesus? Now, he even gets crazier. Like, like, what is he saying here? Like, so then he says, if someone slaps you across the face, turn your cheek and let him slap the other one. Now, we all think that's kind of funny, but what we don't get is that in that culture, the ultimate humiliation, ultimate in that culture, was someone slapping you across the face. If you, 
I don't know if you remember when Darren was preaching last week about when Jesus said something to the high priest and then someone struck him across the face. You don't speak to the high priest. That was to humiliate him. It was the ultimate act of humiliation. And so what is, what is Jesus basically saying? Accept humiliation. Accept it. Turn the, turn the other cheek. You know, and then what's all this stuff about if they ask for your shirt, give them your cloak? Now, that just seems obvious on one hand, but behind what the people understood was there, was, there was a law within the land that actually was a really good human rights kind of law that protected the poor. And basically what it was was that no matter how poor or destitute or in debt or whatever someone was, you couldn't take kind of their inner garment, their cloak or their tunic. That was basically to their, their rights to at least keep that, even if they were so destitute or so in debt they would lose everything else. And so they were protected in that way. And so basically what, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, even the thing that you have rights to, give it away if it's asked for. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy stuff, but that's, that's kind of what he's saying here. And, you know, and then this part about carrying, if someone asks you to carry stuff for them for a mile, go to. Do you know what he's referring to? He's referring to the hated Romans. He's re- referring to the hated Roman soldiers because the Roman soldiers, by law, could go up to anyone and say, carry my gear for a mile. Because they had, you know, all this gear that they had with them. And it's like, let's pick this person, carry my gear for a mile. And so what is Jesus saying? The people you hate, the people who oppress you, those Roman soldiers that you would rather curse or kill, if they, by law, force you to go a mile with their stuff, I say, go to. Now, I'm overstating all of this in a way because I just want you to get how crazy this was to them. What Jesus is teaching here is absolutely ludicrous. It's totally against reason. It's totally against everything that they have been brought up to believe that Torah teaches, that scripture teaches, that tradition teaches. And now Jesus is saying crazy things about how we're supposed to live. What pleases God? What do you do with that? You know, and then I'm not going to unpack the whole next one, but Jesus basically said, again, verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now again, for some of us, we've heard this line so often, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever, that's just another one of those Jesus things to say. But again, I want you to understand how radical this was for them. Everything that they had learned in Torah, in the scriptures said, love your, love your neighbors, be good to your neighbors, be na- that's all very good, it's taught many times in scripture, but you know what, your enemies hate them. Bash them, defeat them, pray for God to destroy them. That's everything that they're reading. And so for Jesus to say, love your enemies? Why do you think they were so mad when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan? There was no one they hated more than Samaritans. And yet when when one of the Jewish leaders asked them, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus just tells this great story to basically illustrate that the people you hate the most, the people that you justifiably call your enemies, guess what? They're your neighbors. Terrible teaching. They hated it. It convinced them that Jesus was not the Messiah because the Messiah would have an army. The Messiah would destroy the enemies. Messiah would set up a kingdom where we have rights and freedoms That's the kingdom, not what Jesus is teaching. Wow. So that's the kingdom clash. 
And when I think about this, what's so hard for me is I have to keep asking myself the question, and I'll pose it to you too, what kind of kingdom do you want? Do we as followers of Jesus really want the kind of kingdom that Jesus taught and lived? You see, I think sometimes we get so caught up within maybe the politics of our nation, the problems of our nation, thinking about history and the different times that Christians had more influence. And and again, I'm not saying that there isn't lots of things to be concerned about, lots of things to be concerned about. But I wonder if sometimes I'm very much like the Jews. I want the conquering, defeat the enemies, strike them down, restore morality, restore Christianity to being the prominent religion again. Those are all the things that I want. That's the kingdom. But when I read the Gospels and examine what Jesus meant by kingdom, it's nothing like that. The early church turned the Roman Empire upside down not because they ever had any political freedom, rights, or power to impose legislation, but it was because person by person and life by life, they so radically lived out the kingdom that it transformed culture and society around them. It was subversive. It was never stand up for your rights and march and be angry and the kind of kingdom that we often get drawn to. That's why there's such a kingdom clash then, why there's such a kingdom clash today. So as we're thinking about now, now back to our main text and, and finish the encounter of, of Jesus and Pilate. So picking it up now right after verse 36 when Jesus says, well, the reason you, you aren't all getting this is because my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, you and your Roman friends, Jewish high priests and leaders, you and all your Jewish friends, you're fighting over the kingdom, all the way you define and understand kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. You don't get my kingdom at all. And so just after saying that, so Pilate hears him say, kingdom, my kingdom, and he's going, ha, got him. He's not, he hasn't said he's a king, but if he has a kingdom, then he must think he's a king. And so that's how Pilate starts out in verse 37. He says, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time for the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So when... Jesus is confronted by, so you are a king then. Jesus Jesus responds again somewhat cryptically. But he ends up taking the conversation from king to truth. And he's basically saying, people follow me because I'm teaching and living the truth, is what he's trying to say. And Pilate, of course, hears this truth. Now, I don't know what you think. Is Pilate responding that way because he's actually convicted or impacted? Maybe. That would be really good if that was the case. Did Pilate react that way because he was offended? You know, like, how dare you tell me that I need to follow your truth? 
perhaps, but I would suggest that Pilate's a way too arrogant to be offended by someone that he would have viewed Jesus like. Is Pilate just cynical? And I guess I'm playing my cards and saying I'm, I would suggest that Pilate is just being really cynical. Now, in our world today, when people talk about truth, what's usually the response? Don't you agree? Lots of cynicism. Don't you hear all the time, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth. Respect my truth, that's your truth. Truth is completely, is, is completely relative, and trying to say we have the truth or that's the truth, it's a mess, right? Like that is, that is just cynical, cynical all through culture, and I would say even often for us it can be a struggle. Now for Pilate, just, just to understand Pilate a little bit, Pilate as a Roman governor would have been very educated in Greek philosophy. That would have been a big part of their education. And so from my limited study on this, I don't pretend to be an expert on Greek philosophy, but basically there was, there was two key Greek philosophies at the time that the Romans would have gravitated to. So one of them was what we call Stoicism. And basically a Stoic or a Stoicism was the Greek philosophy that they did believe in the divine, so they believed in the gods, and they believed because of that in divine providence. However, along with divine providence was the importance of human reason. And so it was kind of like, yes, we believe in divine providence, but we need to make very wise decisions based on reason and fact. And so that was a key Roman philosophy, and you can tell by the strength and power of the Roman Empire that that philosophy would have, embraced, would have been really embraced. So there was definitely the Stoics. However, there was also a growing Greek philosophy by Epicurus called Epicureanism, if I've said that right. And Epicureanism was kind of the opposite in that the Epicureans believed there's no divine plan. Everything is just chance. We are just all matter. Everything is just matter or atoms. We are just physicality and there's no divine, so it doesn't matter. And so a big part of Epicureanism was their big line is seek pleasure and avoid pain. So those are your two competing Greek philosophies of the day that Pilate would have known all about. And now here's some unknown Jewish guy going, I've got the truth. I, I'm embodying the truth. And so I just kind of want you to kind of hear why someone like him would have been so cynical. But I hope it's got your wheels turning of the challenge we have in our culture today. Isn't it interesting, those two Greek philosophies? I'd suggest to you that much of our culture would still kind of resonate somewhat between those two philosophies. Yeah, they've morphed and changed and science and modern technology has affected them a lot. But bottom line, they're the basic philosophies that people struggle with. So when we think as Christians that, hey, we've got the truth and everybody's just excited to hear our truth, oh, I wish that was true. Sadly, it's not. So how do we, how do we respond to that then? See, what saddens me is all too often we respond with indignation. We respond with, oh, that terrible evil world out there. And they're so, it's just so bad, and nobody wants to hear the truth anymore. No one, you know, and, and we just get so negative, and we get so condemning, and we get so down, and we forget who's on the throne still, and we forget who is the king of the kingdom, and we forget the true message of the kingdom because we'd rather be angry, and we'd rather be judgy, and we would rather blame than live the kingdom. 
And so it breaks my heart. It does break my heart. I've got people in my own family that would live by other philosophies and would see my truth as just, oh, that's very nice, you have your truth. Pat, pat, smile, smile. And that feels demeaning, doesn't it? When you believe so passionately that our God became human and dwelt among us and died on that cross and rose again from the dead to give life to the full, that is such liberating, beautiful truth. It was never meant to be truth that was forced upon people or, or to be used as a weapon. That was never the kingdom. And so sadly it became that at times. And so there's so much cynicism and so much rejection. But that doesn't mean that we don't stop living the kingdom and let ourselves over to negativism and blame and just thinking of the good old days rather than believing and praying, thy kingdom come and thy will be done now, today and the future. So I know it's a tough battle out there, but let's remember what our weapons are. And they are the spiritual weapons found in the kingdom, the fruit of the spirit, and actually living out this gospel. You maybe heard the saying before that no one cares what you know until they know that you care. No one cares what you know until they know that you care. And my sisters and brothers in this room, followers of Jesus, I would suggest to you that if we want to live out the gospel and see people come to Jesus in our day and our time, if they don't know that we care, they couldn't care less what our truth is. And so I just encourage you, I plead with you as I plead with myself. We need to come to grips with the kingdom, live the kingdom, be followers of Jesus, livers of Jesus' kingdom. That's where the power is to transform our culture. That's where the power is to open up hearts and lives to the truth that Jesus gave to us. And man, does he got to humble us and prepare us to have that kind of posture. So that's where I encourage us as we respond today. One final quote from uh, the NIV commentator, Rodney Reeves. He says, we already know what love, perfect love, looks like. And he's referring to the Sermon on the Mount. It's refusing to take revenge. It's admitting we have enemies and then loving them, even helping them so much that righteous people could accuse us of treason. How radical do we want to live out the kingdom? Do we want to stay angry and offended? Blame? Or do we want to embrace the true kingdom of Jesus? and see how the true kingdom principles can transform our lives and transform lives around us. And I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform a nation. It's a lot of faith to believe that. But it takes us one by one, submitting to the true king and being a citizen of the true kingdom. And that's the kingdom that I invite us to follow this day. So I'm going to close in prayer and I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come forward. So Lord God, as I try to unpack your word today, I just want to humbly before you just uh, lay down the words of dawn. And Lord, I pray you will forgive me if I've said things today that are just my thoughts and construct. And I pray that if anything is just not helpful or, or even harmful, 
I just pray that you would take it away, take it away from minds and hearts today. Lord God, I'm asking and I'm praying, let only the truth of your word and the truth that your spirit testifies in hearts, let only that be remembered and received by your people today. Lord Jesus, forgive me if in any way I think I know what your kingdom's about. I know so little. Lord, we know so little. But Lord Jesus, we want to pray your kingdom come and your will be done. Lord, help us to lay down our kingdom desires and help us to embrace your kingdom teaching, your kingdom truth. And Lord, I know that's only possible by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, just fall upon your people today and renew your work and renew your kingdom within us and around us for your glory. So Lord, as we respond today, Lord, let the words of this song, let your kingdom come. Build your kingdom, Lord Jesus, in our nation, in our province, in this city, in this church. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand for this final song. It's a song, but I think in the same way, it's just as much of a prayer.